welcome to episode 6 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, and I appreciate you coming back to get your bi-weekly fix of horror movie history. We're into chapter 2 now, and covering the rise of Euro-horror. Again, if you hadn't listened to the previous episode, just all of that Euro-horror that originated out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. Last episode, we had Dave Dr. Shock Becker on, and we gave this broad overview of everything. Kind of a high-level look into European horror at the time, and maybe some things to get people started if they're not completely familiar with it. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to be diving into specific subjects within this time period in European horror. And this first one is going to be all about actress Barbara Steele. Her life and her career, briefly, not as long as we went over Val Luton. I'm going to be focusing more about facts and things that happened within her life, as opposed to really digging deep in the movies. I will be discussing six films tonight, but I just won't be going in full detail. Um, You most likely do not have to worry about any major spoilers here. There might be some minor ones here and there, but nothing that's going to give a lot away. Now, before we get started tonight, I wanted to bring up a couple topics. First of all, over on Horror Movie Weekly, hosted by Jay of the Dead, Mr. Watson, and Projectile Varmint, they're going to be doing a giveaway, but more importantly, they're going to be doing a Top 10 Horror Movies of the Year episode on January 2nd, and that is a Sunday. And all they're asking is for you to tune into that episode. Seems like Jay might have something up his sleeve. So if you're not aware of that, please make sure you tune in. As far as the giveaway, um, all you have to do is send an email over to Horror Movie Weekly's podcast email. And you can check that out in their show notes, I believe, or on one of their episodes. But you send that email over there and guess each one of the hosts' top movie of the year. And you're automatically entered in to win three Criterion Blu-rays. So definitely check that out and make sure you tune in if you're interested to Jay's podcast on January the 2nd. It'd be doing him a huge favor and he's really excited about it. So Jay doesn't get this excited about stuff often, so do him a favor and tune in. Secondly, I'll be announcing the winner of my own Criterion Blu-ray giveaway of Eyes Without a Face at the end of this episode. So stick around to hear who won that and I'll get that out. And also on the next episode, the last one for the year where I'll be doing a top horror movies as well, there may be another giveaway on that. So tune in and listen to that episode, and you'll hear some details on that one. With that being said, if you'd please open your books to chapter 2, page 2, we'll begin. So why Barbara Steele? Barbara is a very iconic actor, and she really is this staple of this early period of Italian Gothic horror. Barbara Steele may be one of the most important figures in this Gothic renaissance that's going on within Italian film at this time. I mean, yes, you have Mario Bava, who's probably the most famous to come out of all of this, but she's out there doing all of these Gothic horror movies, and she's really carrying the torch. And the first thing about Barbara that we'd recognize is just how striking her looks are. We'll talk about later on how that actually was enough to get her some roles. She has a very unique look, I guess. She's very beautiful, but she has this dual sense of she can portray like a sweet character or she can portray like an evil character. She can go on both sides of the spectrum almost, and she's an incredible actor. 
A trademark of Steel would become playing dual roles, and that can show you her range right there, that she's able to play dual characters in a lot of these movies. There's like four or five of these movies that she's done in her career where she's playing two characters. We also have a lot of similar themes throughout Barbara's movies as far as there are several of them that take the old plot device of someone who's died is haunting the living or the dead coming back to life. It's all very gothic horror. And that's really where it got its start in Italy. And it would be short-lived. It would only last probably not even a decade in Italy. But we got some really good gothic horror films in this time period. And a lot of the most famous ones had Barbara Steele in them. I feel like Barbara Steele does not get enough credit sometimes. She's definitely one of those early scream queens, if you will. And I hate that term. I hate the term scream queens. But that's what it is. That's what it's been coined. That's what we're talking about. And that's basically what Barbara is for this time period. She is the main one. I don't know in most of the circles I run in if Barbara is underrated, but I don't hear a lot about her. Not a lot of people are talking about Barbara Steele. And that might be because she's in a lot of these more obscure old Italian horror films. She's definitely in Black Sunday, and that's got to get people's attention right away. But we'll get into that as well as we go on. It's a shame that we don't often get to hear Steele's voice. Almost all the time she is dubbed, which was custom to Italian film at the time, and the way I understand it, those dubbing unions were pretty tight and usually wouldn't let the original actors dub themselves. That usually didn't happen. Now, there are two roles I can think of right off the top that we hear Barbara's voice in, and I haven't seen either of these films, but from what I understand, there are two films where Barbara actually uses her own voice. And that would be Nightmare Castle and She-Beast, which are not two of her higher rated films, let's just say. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit as well. But as far as I can tell in her early career, that's about it. Even when she was in The Pit and the Pendulum, the uh, Roger Corman film, she was dubbed because of her British accent. So she couldn't even use her real voice in an English language film. Now, later on, of course, I'm going to assume that she was talking. It's been a while since I've seen a couple of these films, but Piranha and Shivers and Silent Scream, I'm going to assume that she was using her voice in that and speaking. I don't think they'd be dubbing movies in that time in the U.S., but I don't know. You never know, really. Now that we've set up a little bit of background on why I'm choosing Barbara Steele and some of her characteristics, let's try to get into her life a little bit. <clears throat> It appears that even Barbara's date of birth is mysterious. I have this quote that comes from Turner Classic Movies about the birthplace and the birth date of Steele, and this is incredible. Determining the exact date and place of birth for Barbara Steele, long presented biographers with the challenge of sifting through a paper trail of overblown studio publicity handouts and the actress's own penchant for vivid fabrication. The most widely accepted date was December 19, 1937 though some sources put the milestone weeks, a month, or even a year later. Steele often claimed to have been a native of her father's homeland of Ireland, while a 1960 press release from American International Pictures spun the romantic tale that she was in fact born aboard an Irish ship entering the port of Liverpool. More reliable sources put Steele's true birthplace in a seaport town of Birkenhead, in the metropolitan borough of Wirral in Merseyside, or slightly inland in the Birkland suburb of Prenton. Now, this is incredible. Steele is still alive to this day, and we can't nail down a proper birth date for her. And she's an English-speaking actor. We can't nail down 
a birth date for someone who is alive and has done conventions and interviews and is not hiding from the public eye, at least for periods of time in her life, it's hilarious they've got the little point in there that she has a penchant for vivid fabrication, so she's probably always spinning a different story, and she probably gets a lot of enjoyment out of it. I could see where that would be fun messing with people. But, again, the most accepted birth date is December 19th, 1937, give or take a year, a month, a day, who knows? Um, once she found out that acting was going to be her calling, she went and attended Summerhill School and attended some classes there. And once she was done with Summerhill School, she began getting acting gigs in London and also at regional theaters around the UK. It was actually when she was performing a production of Bell, Book, and Candle at the Citizens Theatre of Glasgow that she was scouted by the J. Arthur Rank organization and was offered a contract to come and act for them. Her film debut was in Bachelor of Hearts from 1958, and this was a comedy movie. After that, she appeared in a number of J. Arthur Rank films that were just kind of forgettable and failed to make an impact, and one of those was a remake of Hitchcock's 39 Steps. Even though she was meant to be a successor to Gene Simmons, no, not that Gene Simmons, uh, Rank ultimately decided that they weren't sure how to utilize Steele, and they sold her contract to 20th Century Fox. So, Barbara's going on this little bit of a journey. She She's doing regional theater all over the United Kingdom, anywhere from Glasgow to London, and she gets scouted out by this production company and is brought on to be the successor. She's going to be the heir apparent to this company, and that's the way it's working at this time, where they bring someone in, she's probably going to star in a lot of their big roles. Problem is, they don't know what to do with her. They have no idea what to do with her. They get her in there, they built her up, because she was so great when they went and scouted her out, and they've got no idea what to do, so they just ship her off to 20th Century Fox. They take her contract and sell it to another company. Think about that. Think about if you're working for someone, and they're like, hey... Yeah, we sold your contract, and yeah, you're going to have to move to another country because we don't want to work with you anymore. We just don't know how to use you. That's insane. That is insane. But here we are, and Barbara's on her way to Hollywood. As soon as she arrived, they actually dyed her hair blonde, which is crazy thinking about Barbara Steele. They set her up for big things immediately. She was set to star across from Elvis Presley in Flaming Star. Unfortunately, she butted heads constantly with director Don Siegel, and she was soon replaced by Barbara Eden after only a week of shooting. So tough break for Barbara doesn't work out for her in her first gig in England, and now she's overseas and in Hollywood, and she gets replaced on her first movie because of conflicts with the director. Would not be the first time we hear about Barbara being difficult, though. In March of 1960, shortly after she had arrived in the United States, a SAG strike halted Steele's U.S. career for the foreseeable future. So she gets dismissed from her first role, and then as she's trying to build a career in the U.S., there's a strike. So that's it for Steele for now in the United States. Um, instead of waiting out the strike and to see if she can get work afterwards after it's resolved, she flew back to Europe to find some work. Up-and-coming special effects artist Mario Bava picked her picture out of a stack of headshots with plans for her to star in his feature debut, Black Sunday. Black Sunday was released in Italy on August 11th of 1960 as The Mask of Satan. It's a loose adaptation of the Russian novel V, which was also adapted into a Russian film of the same name. 
from what I understand, that I think it's 1967-1968 film is much, much closer to the original source material and is considered the most faithful adaptation of V. So check that out if you're interested in that one too. That's another good piece of Euro horror from the time. Funny thing here is that Steele's co-star for Black Sunday was John Richardson, who she had worked with on several films at J. Arthur Rank. So at least she's got someone who she's worked with before and she can relate to there. A fellow Brit, as it were. Steele admitted that she was difficult to work with with her first starring role. Um, she irritated Bava to no end. She was frequently late. She was making demands about her makeup and her wardrobe. And it didn't help that she didn't speak any Italian. So I'm sure the communication gap was kind of a little tough there. To get back at her, it's said that Bava would tease her about shooting on special film that would allow viewers to see through the actor's clothes. And this is kind of funny that they've got a back and forth. She's being difficult, and Bava's teasing her to go right back at her. And I love that little back and forth. Film was made for the equivalent of 100000 US dollars and wasn't considered a financial success upon its first run in Italy. Although it would prove to be very influential in Italian cinema. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit here. The English releases of this film get a little messy. First off, Dave and I were talking last time about the Kino Lorber release, and no, there doesn't appear to be a version of this film with the Italian language and English subtitles. The original international English version was recorded in Rome and was done by the ELDA, or the English Language Dubbers Association. This was mainly true to the original film, with the exception of one cut. Now, this was released as The Mask of Satan. So, if you see a release that is titled The Mask of Satan, which is on Shudder currently, that is the most true to the original, at least in the what was filmed. Now, American International Pictures had an existing relationship of buying Italian films and had purchased the rights of this movie for $100,000, immediately recouping the film's budget which is great to hear that this is profitable, and that probably gives Bava some leeway in his future career because he would go into a long-storied career, and this was his first credited directorial attempt. And what a directorial attempt it was, by the way. But the AIP version was redubbed, re-edited, and changed characters' names along with replacing the score, something that was commonplace among dubs all over the industry and would be for years and years. Now, the ELDA dub, when we're talking to AIP, in their mind, the ELDA dub largely took some liberties with the lip movements and matching up everything. And they were doing a more true-to-the-script, I think, adaptation. Where AIP was concerned, their dub largely lined up with lip movements and synced better. But I would still prefer that there be less cuts to the version, because they cut out four minutes, and most of it was the violence. I would much rather have the original character names and the original film, as opposed to the lip-syncing lining up. That's just me, though. One, you're getting removed some of the film's violent scenes, and there's not a whole lot in this film, so that's important. And then you're getting characters' names changed, which I hate. I hate that. And that's been done for decades now. We've seen character names changed in the English releases of things. They also brought in storied B-movie composer Les Baxter to redo the score as AIP felt the original was too Italian, quote-unquote, 
the list of things they were complaining about was every single action had a score set to it. There was never a moment to breathe, and it wasn't boisterous, and all this stuff. And listen, I don't know. I've probably seen the original version of Black Sunday, maybe. I don't know. The AIP version, when I say original, it's not actually the original. But I didn't have a problem with the score, and I can't imagine, given what I've seen on other Bava films, that the American score was better. I, after that mess with The Evil Eye slash The Girl Who Knew Too Much, that score was played completely for comedic effect, and I don't think America at the time was capable of knowing what to do with international films. That's just my two cents. I'd prefer The Mask of Satan if you were to check one of these out. Now, they went back and forth on the name before releasing it in the U.S. They suggested names like Witchcraft, The Curse, or Vengeance. They ultimately settled on Black Sunday, which is what the film is widely known as today. I think it's a better title than The Mask of Satan, and I think it sells easier, but I don't think it's as true to the film as The Mask of Satan is. I think The Mask of Satan is very literal as to what happens in the film, or at least a piece of the film, and I think you get that a lot with the Italian names of these films. Okay, and while we're here, I need to get off on a little tangent. I know Dave and I had talked about this last episode with these Kino Lorber releases. Kino Lorber released the Mario Bava collection films, and they just released several of Bava's films for home video under the name The Mario Bava Collection. And we had talked about what I was just discussing earlier about the version I had was titled The Mask of Satan, which is the version I would rather have. I just didn't know if there was an English or if there was an Italian language version. There's not. But AIP is infuriating. So with releases like The Evil Eye and The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which are the same film, The Evil Eye was just the Americanized title and that film was kind of jumbled up and changed, really. And then there was also, they did the same thing with um, The House of Exorcism slash Lisa and the Devil. And Lisa and the Devil is the original Italian cut and The House of Exorcism is the chopped up US version. They put both versions on those releases. And it says so right on the title. You've got both versions in there. Now, if you look at Black Sunday, there are two versions. There is Black Sunday, and then there's the AIP release, and you have to be very careful, unless you're buying this directly from Kino Lorber, on which release you're buying. The covers are different, and if you could go to Kino Lorber, you could probably see the difference between the two. But one is titled The Mask of Satan, and one is that AIP release, cut down four minutes, that would come out to be Black Sunday. They're both Black Sunday on the cover, but you have to do a little digging if you're doing that, and that's ridiculous enough. But then, what led me down a spiral here is that for Black Sabbath, the famous 1963 film, there are also two releases, but two very different releases. I remember seeing two different releases when I was looking on Amazon initially, and the cover for one of these is much cooler than the other, in my opinion. Well, that's the one I bought. Looking over at my shelf... That is the English language version of Black Sabbath. The difference on the English version is it was kind of jumbled around, and there are a lot of differences between the English version and the Italian version. Now, I'm not saying that English version is bad because that was the original that I had watched, but I go over there and it just has the English language version. There's not the Italian and the English language version. So I have to get on Amazon and buy the Italian version so I can have both of these. And... Honestly, I don't have a problem with having both, just because I think the two films are a little different, including the ending is different, and the order of the stories that are told are different, 
but it's so infuriating that you can't distinguish these things. Why put them on separate releases? I understand that some people are going to get confused. I got confused, and I read one of the reviews of the Italian language version, and it was someone being angry because it was the Italian language version and not the English language version. And I know there's both schools of thought there. Why not just put them both on the same disc? Same thing with Black Sunday. Just include Black Sunday and The Mask of Satan so people can switch back and forth and see the differences anyway. So, Kino, you're on notice. Step your game up there. That's just, it's just crazy to me. You don't see any other label doing that kind of stuff, really. You see them putting out one release that usually has both audio tracks on it and usually has different versions of the film, just like they've done with um, The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Lisa and the Devil. There are two distinct cuts of that film on each of those releases. So I don't get it. You got to get that sorted out. And that's been that way for years. They're not going to change it. Anyway, back on track. In the U.S., this premiered at Black Sunday, being um, at the Allen Theater in Cleveland, Ohio, on February 3rd, 1961. And then after one screening in the U.K. in 1961... The film was banned and wouldn't get a wide release until 1968, which was titled Revenge of the Vampire and was a heavily edited version of the ELDA dub. It wouldn't release uncut in the UK until 1992, and this would become the name of the game, really, with these European releases that are coming out in the UK, or American releases that are coming out in the UK. A lot of censorship was going to come into play in UK during the 70s and 80s. Now, that's enough about Black Sunday. Um, we've only scratched to the surface of Black Sunday, but I plan on doing a whole series on Bava sometime in the future, so we'll save some other facts about that film. So to set this thing up, there are a couple of doctors that have their carriage broke da- break down, and they enter this tomb and accidentally unleash this centuries-old witch, played by Barbara Steele, and there's also this princess, played by Barbara Steele, and she lives with her brother and father, in this old Eastern European type looking town. And yeah, she's basically the spitting image of this witch that was murdered. And now we've got this witch freed and we'll see what kind of havoc it wreaks across the land. Right from the start, this film doesn't hold back. The first scene, we get the witch being executed and she's put in this Iron Maiden type thing, but it's just the mask, and it's closed down. It has spikes on it, and it's just closed into her face. So then later on, when we see the witch, she has these holes in her face, which is awesome. It's very striking and very memorable. The performance of Steel here is pretty great, as she is most of the time. It's just a standout film from all these beautiful gothic shots, these sets that are set up so great. The lore that's put into this, where... You know, they know about the witch, and they know there's some kind of curse being brought from the witch. And it's kind of sets up those trappings that would influence Italian horror for years, especially the next decade, as we're moving on. And we would see that with Bava going through his career, is every time he puts something out, the Italian industry kind of pays close attention. And you can see the echoes of what would come in Italian cinema from Bava. And this is just a masterpiece of a film. I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Again, I'm going to go deeper into this film probably in another chapter way down the road. But it's a classic. It's a masterpiece of a film. Steele's debut as a leading lady. Bava's debut as a full-time director. And it's incredible what they create out of it. 
So for Black Sunday, I mean, there's not much to say right now about Black Sunday. I, again, will go into much greater detail later on, but this is a must-watch, and I think Black Sunday is a classic, one of those classic Italian horror films. I mean, I would say this has got to be like a top five of Italian horror films, for me anyway. Black Sunday is just incredible, and it's mesmerizing, and it's just a great film. Let's get moving on here, though. I'd rather talk about some of the more obscure films. After Black Sunday, she was lured back to the U.S. by AIP to star in Roger Corman's The Pit and the Pendulum in 1961. Now, I'm not going to talk about this film pretty much at all because it doesn't have anything to do with Europe. It was done in the U.S., but it was a pretty big deal. It was part of those Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe movies and also had Vincent Price in there, so it's a classic. A shame she couldn't use her voice, though. While Steele was in the U.S., she would also appear in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1961 before returning back to Europe. Once back in Italy, she would star in Ricardo Freda's The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock. We have a cool connection here between these first two films I'm talking about, because Freda was the credited director on I, Vampiri, or Lust of the Vampire, from, I believe, 1956, 1958 maybe 1957, somewhere around there. Now, Freda had to drop out. He had to leave midway through due to a scheduling conflict. And Bava came in and finished this in an uncredited directorial role. So this was Bava's first taste of directing, but he wasn't the full-on credited director. He would have to wait until Black Sunday for that. Freda would also go on to direct The Ghost with Barbara Steele, which I'll talk about here in a little bit and a mid-to-lower-tier sort of giallo, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire. Ernesto Gastaldi was approached to write an adaptation of a giallo titled Spectral that one of the producers really liked. Gastaldi wrote his own version titled Raptus. Initially, Raptus didn't have anything about necrophilia in it, and Gastaldi couldn't really recall why he added it. Um, he suggested maybe one of the associates asked him to write something harder and more macabre, but he doesn't know. When Gastaldi and producer Ermano Donati met with Freda about directing it, Donati exclaimed, Let's see if you have the balls to shoot this stuff. It's about corpses. And he handed Freda the script. What a sales pitch there. But Freda didn't even read the script and didn't miss a beat and replied back, As long as I get paid, I'll even shoot the phone book. So you can kind of see for better or worse maybe what we're going to get from Ricardo Freda. He's just out there to work and earn a paycheck, maybe. Maybe he's not there for the creative purposes. But whatever it comes out as, I do like his follow-up to this much better. During filming, Steele had to take 10 days off so she could film her role in Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. Her co-star, Robert Fleming, took this role after reading the initial Raptus treatment because he wanted to go to Rome. After finding out that the film included necrophilia, however... He tried everything he could to drop out and get out of his contract, but unfortunately he had already signed his contract and was locked in. This is one of those releases where all of the actors spoke in their native tongue during filming, and I think it would just be crazy as to trying to concentrate when you have all these different languages. I don't know how many different languages of actors there were in here. There's at least probably a few, and that would be very distracting as a director. I mean... Would you know all of those languages? Would you know if they're getting the delivery right? I don't know, but very chaotic in these productions. When passed through the censors board in Italy, 
it became the first horror film to receive the VM-18 rating, which was just introduced under their new rating system um, that rolled out a couple months earlier. No cuts were asked to be made by the censors, which, you know, if this thing was releasing in America, it would be chopped to pieces, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it is that first horror movie to re receive that VM-18 rating, which was new for Italy. It released in Italy on June 30th, 1962, and was considered to have a pretty strong box office return for what it was made for. They went ahead and offered the film to AIP, and even AIP turned it down, as they couldn't see a way to sell it to their intended audience, who they thought were young kids. I mean, that was the horror audience in America at the time, were younger people. It was the kids that they were targeting at, and you could see that with such sci-fi classics as them, or any of those films that came out around that time, as they were targeting younger audiences, because they thought that's who was seeing horror movies. It was finally picked up and released by Sigma 3 in the United States on February 18th, 1965, so we had to wait a full three years for this thing to be localized. Um, it was cut down to 76 minutes, and a lot of scenes were rearranged and dissolves were added into some scenes to presumably cut out some content. It was released in the UK a year later and was titled The Terror of Dr. Hitchcock. Now, circling back on I, Vampiria, Lust for the Vampire for a minute because I forgot, um, I've always wanted to see this film being able to complete my Bava filmography there, and finally I think there's a place to see it. I have searched and searched and there's not anywhere to see it. I went on Just Watch and it looks like it's on some kind of app or website called Classic, and you have to subscribe to it. So I'm going to try it out. I don't know. That's not promising. That's very generic. But if it has the film on there, I'm interested in seeing it. So if you are interested in seeing Bava's first film, check out the app or website Classic if you can. I think it's available on there. So I'm glad to be able to check that one out finally. I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis for this one because I love a certain phrase in here. The year is 1885 and necrophiliac Dr. Hitchcock likes to drug his wife for sexual funeral games. <laughs> One day he accidentally administers an overdose and kills her. Several years later, he remarries with the intention of using the blood of his new bride to bring his first wife's rotting corpse back to life. Really cheery there. The thing that's always gotten to me with this synopsis is the sexual funeral games. It's so... Such a weird term and such a weird concept. But yes, he drugs his wife to give her the appearance of being dead and then does the deed with her. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty messed up. If you're worried about the sex and nudity aspect of this thing, though, it doesn't really get too much into detail. You're not going to be seeing these blatant sex scenes going on. So don't worry too much about that. That's a hell of a premise, though. You've got a doctor who's drugging his wife because he is a necrophiliac, which is disgusting, but she dies accidentally, and what we see throughout this, or what we think we see throughout this, is his new wife, played by Barbara Steele, being haunted by this other wife, and she's learning the secrets of what goes on, and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty intense stuff, but this is where, again, we've got, with the first film, you've got someone who's supposedly dead, haunting the living, and I don't have a whole lot to say about this film. It is striking, and it's hard to forget certain aspects of it, especially, I think, the ending and the beginning with the funeral games, but it's not one of my favorites, and I've watched it twice now, and it's never really hit me that well. I don't think it's the subject matter. I think it just gets kind of bogged down in itself. 
Uh, I think it's a an okay movie, and Steel does a good job here as always, but it's nothing remarkable, I don't think. That's my opinion personally. But again, very memorable. She is in rare form here, though, as she doesn't very often only play a good character. Usually in those dual roles, she's playing like an antagonist and a good character. Here she's playing a purely innocent character, and wouldn't be the last time, but she's definitely playing a better character here. As far as a recommendation, I'd say this is worth a one-time watch if the subject matter doesn't bother you. Again, it's not going to get into any grisly details in this film, but it's worth a one-time watch to check out as a, kind of an oddity, and it's, it's a solid film, it's just not anything striking to me. Steele would next move on to the aforementioned The Ghost in 1963, and as mentioned, this was also directed by F Ricardo Freda. The film is a loose adaptation of the French film Diabolique, and Dave and I discussed that on the last episode. If you're interested at all in watching this film, please check out Diabolique first so you don't get anything kind of ruined for you. I don't think it's that true to Diabolique, but there's probably certain aspects of it that might get ruined for you. I don't know. But Diabolique is a superior film and is a must-watch before this one. Ghost also includes a Dr. Hitchcock character at its center, but knowing what we do about Freda, there's probably no connection as it's probably done just maybe as a bit of laziness or maybe to connect people to think of Alfred Hitchcock. He was certainly the most famous Hitchcock at that point in time. The Ghost released in Italy on March 30th, 1963, and it had an even stronger box office run than The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock. It was said that censors had no objections at all to this film, and I can see why. It would go on to release in the UK in February of 1964, and actually came to the US a year later than the UK on February 18th, 1965. What we've seen up to this point are films releasing in the US before the UK. Well, the UK got this one first. In this one, Steele plays a woman who is plotting to murder her husband, who is also, he has some kind of problem with his legs. He's in a wheelchair for sure. I don't know exactly what issues he's having, but she's plotting to murder her husband to inherit his money and to leave him for the much younger doctor who she is in love with. And this doctor comes over, and I think he moves in eventually, but he's the one that's coming and giving this poison to this doctor. This is how they're trying to heal the doctor, is they give him poison and then give him an antidote to kind of shock his system and get his legs working again. And it seems like it's starting to work and he's starting to get better. Well, the two are working together to murder him so they can be together and that they can take his inheritance and live lavishly. Well, after the good Dr. Hitchcock is murdered by the other doctor who is in love with his wife, some strange things start to happen, the first of which is he gives his money to someone else, and we start to wonder, again, is there a ghost haunting Barbara Steele's character? This film is very diabolical and has turn after turn as they attempt to get through this plot. The ending to this is incredible, and in my opinion, this is one of Steele's better roles, and she plays a kind of conniving gold-digging woman, and she puts it right out there in the open, what she's doing and what her intentions are, about how mad she gets after her inheritance isn't left to her, just a portion of it. But she plays that so well here, and that ending is so off the rails incredible. I love the entire ending. It's just, the ending is very good. It maybe goes some places you wouldn't think it goes, but 
It's a very good ending. This film definitely kept my attention the whole time, and I think this is one of the better, like I said, better performances, but I think one of the better films even in Steele's filmography. If I was to go ahead and give a recommendation of The Ghost, I would say you definitely need to check this one out. This one's a, a bit more modern, but it does have that go- those gothic sensibilities to it. The characters here in the story is wonderful. So, yeah, that's a high recommendation for anyone to check out The Ghost. Steele would have her reputation uplifted a little bit after appearing in Fellini's Eight and a Half in 1963, which I touched on a little bit earlier. Um, This role was small. It wasn't a huge role, but it was a memorable role. And for her, it would maybe affect the way she viewed her career going forward, not in a good way. However, as soon as she was done with Eight and a Half, she would get right back into B-movies. This time, it was going to be Antonio Margarete's 1964 gothic tale, Castle of Blood. Now, originally, Sergio Corbucci was brought in to direct, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflict, um, and he brought his friend Margarete in to finish it. When the film was released on February 27th of 1964 in Italy, it received a low box office return, and this led to Margarete remaking it in color as Web of the Spider in 1970. He would later go on record as regretting this and said the color cinematography destroyed everything, the atmosphere, the tension. film was released in France as Dance Macabre, or The Dance of Death, on April 14th, 1965, and this cut would actually feature a nude scene that wasn't present in the original Castle of Blood. I think the title here is an allusion to an Edgar Allan Poe short story. The film would go on to release in L.A. on July 29th of 1964. And as all great films, this one began as an attempt to reuse the medieval sets from one of Corbucci's earlier films. It was credited as an adaptation of a Poe short story like I'd mentioned, but it actually doesn't follow the story of any of his works. It does, however, include him as a cameo, someone playing him at the beginning of this film. Ruggiero Deodato was actually an assistant director on this film, and according to him, he was responsible for bringing Steele in. He had to convince her because she was trying to distance herself from horror after Eight and a Half, as she had been typecast for so many years. I think I read something about Steele she would start to use after she had been in Eight and a Half, start to use lines like, Do you know who I am? I've worked with Fellini and all this stuff, and I'm too good for this stuff. And that's just unfortunate to see. You feel bad because she clearly wanted to get out of the role she was typecast in. And we see that happen time and time again. People get typecast and they have to stay within the genre or stay within certain roles. And they can't get out of it. And that's that's unfortunate to see. But there's no reason to be so disrespectful and to look at life that way. I don't know Barbara Steele personally, of course. I don't know anything about her. She could be a wonderful woman, and I'm not trying to besmirch anyone's name here, but that's probably not the way to conduct yourself when going through things. Unfortunately, the transfer I watched of this on Amazon Prime was horrible, but it didn't really hinder my enjoyment too much. At the beginning of this movie, we get a scene where our lead is requesting an interview with Edgar Allan Poe. Um, A man approaches Poe and the writer about staying in his abandoned estate, and this is All Hallows' Eve, I believe. He asks about staying in the abandoned estate, he says it has to be this night, and yes, the estate might have a storied history of death. Poe has no interest, and the writer really wants to get a story from Poe here, so he's kind of reluctant, but it's 
funny, he makes a wager um, with the owner of the estate, and he's so poor that he can only afford to wager, I think it's only 10 lira that he's wagering. (laughs) This comes up later when someone claims, oh, you have to finish out the night and you'll get rich. And he has to inform them that he can only afford to wager a small amount, so he's not going to get rich. It's kind of a funny little thing thrown in there as he's only doing this for 10 lira, which is crazy. But he does get to interview Poe on the way over there, so I guess he's getting his story out of it. And he's not afraid of Ghost. Um, Steel really shines here, and her scenes are my favorite of the film by far. She really makes this movie, and I think she really carries a lot of this movie. When Steel isn't front and center, and when Steel kind of takes a background, because she does play a large role in the first third of this film and in the last like quarter of the film. And when she's not there, the film loses me a little bit. The atmosphere is really thick and palpable, though, and he's slowly realizing that the people he's meeting in this estate are actually no longer alive, and he's seen glimpses of how they died, and that's kind of, you're kind of led to believe that going in, like, you know something's not right here, because, you know, they've already claimed that Barbara Steele's character had died, and that was the owner's sister. You learn later that there's a reason why this man was here, specifically on this night, and what goes on in this house pretty much every year, but I won't give away the specifics of that. We do have a very sympathetic character of Steel here. I think she, this is similar to Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, and it's by the same director, so it makes sense. She has a very sympathetic character and very likable character. We do see some twinges of jealousy here and there, though. We do see a little bit of a darker side, but it's mostly a pretty sweet and innocent character. Again, they lose me about midway through a little bit, and it kind of gets plotting, but the ending, I think, is a thrill ride, and you'll need to strap in for it, because it gets pretty crazy there at the end. As far as a recommendation for this one, I'd say it's a high recommend for the atmosphere alone. If you can find a better transfer of it than I did, I would suggest that, so you can maybe see more of what was going on. I'm not sure if there is a good release of that out there. I'm sure there there might be. There has to be, right? But yeah, it's definitely worthy of a watch, and I think it fits into that upper tier of of the Barbara Steele films. Next up is another Margarete joint with the long hair of death. Here we get Steele in another dual role, uh, but she's not alone. She plays the role of Helen, who is the supposed murdered daughter of an executed witch, and Mary, a girl who shows up at a castle during a thunderstorm, and it's kind of mysterious origins. Now, Polish actress Helena Zaleska, don't know if I'm pronouncing that, that's probably terrible, plays the said executed witch Adele and her grown-up youngest daughter in the future, Elizabeth. Our old pal Ernesto Gastaldi returns to co-write this one. It was released in Italy on December 30th, 1964, and would go on to gross much more than the three previous films I mentioned. I like the setup of Long Hair of Death, and I think it has a great setting, but it kind of gets bogged down in the middle, just like Castle of Blood. The ending is really cool, though. It should tell you something here that I just watched this a couple weeks ago, and I'm struggling to remember much about it. Long Hair of Death didn't leave a great impression on me. Again, I liked the ending and where that went. It is moody and the sets are great, but it just didn't leave that lasting impact like some of these other films. Even The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, which I'm not a huge fan of, it leaves an impact. So I don't have much to say about this one. I think it's worth checking out. I just don't have a whole lot to say on it. I would go ahead and give this one a one-time watch 
recommendation. Um, it's worth seeing once if you're trying to complete this Barber Steel filmography. Next up for Steel would be a couple of movies I haven't seen. First is Terror Creatures from the Grave, where she played a minor role. And from what I understand, doesn't really have much to do until the end of the film. After that, she would bounce to another dual role in Mario Cayano's Nightmare Castle in 1965. Now, I have heard a lot about this one, but I just didn't get to watch it in time for this episode. In this film, she would take on the roles of a physician's murdered wife and her twin sister. Sounds somewhat familiar. A lot of these dual roles, she's playing in very similar circumstances. She'd take a break from her horror run, just as it was starting to get stale, to take a turn into the art house. She took roles in Once Upon a Tractor, which was a 40-minute short film comedy, and Young Torless, a drama film, which was an allegory for the rise of Nazism. That didn't last long, as she would dive right back into the horror realm with the much-maligned She-Beast from 1966, where she plays the role of a woman possessed by a witch. How original for Steel. <laughs> At this point, it's... It's almost the same thing over and over. You can only do so much within the gothic confines. This was directed by Michael Reeves, actually, who would go on to direct only two more films, but one was the classic Witchfinder General. So, needless to say, this one wasn't received well, but he would get his footing by his third film, at least. Now, I think the next film really bolsters up her career. I think it's a fantastic film, and something I just discovered recently, and that is An Angel for Satan. The film would release on May 4th, 1966, and would gross the lowest of any of her films that I featured in this episode, unfortunately. She again takes on a dual role, playing Harriet, a young girl who comes home from, I think, boarding school or some kind of school, um, to accept her inheritance, and a ghost, Belinda, who seemingly possesses her. In Italian horror tradition, we have an artist coming to restore a sculpture, and the film centers around this. Still perfectly plays this dual role of a sweet and innocent Harriet who falls for the sculptor and the domineering Belinda who possesses her. Due to Belinda being unattractive to men in her own life, um, she uses Harriet to control men with her beauty and forcefulness and to kind of get revenge. She doesn't really like men that much, and I I mean, I could see that if you were treated like that by men. So she's using revenge as her purpose to come back. This one does take a turn I didn't expect near the end, but it is a good turn. My only complaint, really, is we don't get enough Harriet time. I think this might be Steele's best overall performance, even though it's not her best overall film. But the problem is, Harriet, as she's falling in love with the sculptor, she's just this sweet and innocent and such a great character and it's such a contrast when she goes into possessed mode. And I really love Harriet's character. I love how Harriet comes off. But we just kind of lose her maybe a third of the way into the film. We don't see much of her afterwards. And even when we do, we're not sure if it's really Harriet or if it's Belinda just acting to be Harriet, which kind of kind of sucks. But it's a fantastic performance on both sides. She plays two very extremes here. Severin Films actually just put out a release of this, and I have picked it up. I haven't got it yet, so I'm excited to check that out one day, but there is a good release of this film out there. As far as a recommendation, as you can probably tell, I really love this film. It's got all those gothic sensibilities and those 
grand settings, and I love the story and lore and the background that they set up with this um, particular sculpture and the story behind it. And I love the dual role from Steel here, and I think this is really her best behind only Black Sunday as far as the Italian fair goes. And, and maybe her second best overall, period, but I don't want to make a statement on that yet. But yes, that is a high recommendation. You definitely need to check this one out. If you're only going to see a few Barbara Steele films, you need to check this one out. Now, maybe on in 1968, she had a nearly wordless cameo and was basically there for eye candy in, in Curse of the Crimson Altar or, or the Crimson Cult, as it was also titled, um, which starred Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. But again, not much for her to do there. And at this point, she's fed up with where her international career took her and decided to head stateside once more. She would end up marrying James Poe in 1969 and would have a son with Poe in 1971. Um, she would look to, at this point, revitalize her career with more mature roles. And she would stay in the B-movies, but hopefully she's playing different characters and getting a different kind of satisfaction out of it. Speaking of satisfaction, in 1974, she played a prison warden in Jonathan Demme's Caged Heat. Yes, the guy who would go on to direct Silence of the Lambs directed a women in prison movie. It happens, guys. It happens. After that, she would go on to play a minor, not a starring role, but a memorable role in David Cronenberg's breakout hit Shivers. And that was in 75, I believe it released here in the States. Um, and in 78, she would come back swinging with an excellent role in Joe Dante's Piranha. I really like her in that role of that scientist in Piranha. She stood out to me for sure when I watched Piranha recently, when I watched it again recently. Steel definitely stood out. So she had a string there of two varying degrees. I mean, some of those are cult classics, especially Shivers and Piranha. But she would be pay playing these smaller roles. She's no longer a leading lady, but she'd rather do that than be in these gothic horror films anymore. And I don't blame her. And I think she does some good work in this portion of her career. Um, in 78, she would unfortunately get a divorce from James Poe. So those two go their separate ways. And in 79, she would play a smaller role, but a very memorable one, I believe, as well, in Silent Scream. Now, to go into Silent Scream a little, because this is probably the least known of these American films we're talking about here. Story goes with this one that they started filming on this one in 1977, but what they had was called Unreleasable, which is very bad if you do this film and it's like, hey, we can't release this garbage. She was brought in with a group of new actors to help create a new core and to bridge the usable footage from the original Silent Scream together with a film that would look to cash in on Halloween's recent success. The film would go on to be profitable, and while I do love Steele's role in the movie itself and her character in it, it's understandably just okay. I mean, from what they went through, yeah, we can see where you're kind of piecing together a movie, and you should be happy with what you have, really. After this, she would briefly retire from acting for about three years, until she popped up again to produce and act in a TV miniseries adaptation of The Winds of War. Now, she would also go on to produce the sequel, War and Remembrance, and I think she acted in that too, in 1988. Um, that would actually win her a share of an Emmy in 1989 for Outstanding Miniseries. So, yes, Barbara Steele is a very decorated producer as well. 
Next, she would pop up in the 1990 revival series of Dark Shadows. She appeared in the pilot and then, or maybe it was a miniseries, and then it went to series, but it was short-lived, unfortunately, and would lead to another retirement, but at this point she would be heavily featured in the horror convention circuit. These days, though, Steele is back to acting, with her latest credit being Miranda on the Netflix animated Castlevania show, which is currently still airing. Um, I'm not sure. I only watched, I think, the first season of this, so I'm not sure if her character is still going on. But yeah, she's doing something to this day, still out there acting, and in something that's pretty recognizable and pretty well-received, actually. Um, She is allegedly 83, or maybe 84 by the time you hear this episode, or 85? 82? I don't know. Only Barbara probably knows, and don't know if we're getting that answer. Barbara, if you're listening... I'm sorry I called you hard to work with. Please let us know when your actual birth date was. Give us the scoop here. But to sum up things, Steele really changed the landscape of Italian horror forever with her mesmerizing performances. She was in so many memorable roles, so many of these dual roles, which we don't see. Many actors don't do a dual role in their entire career, let alone, you know, four or five that she's done throughout her career. And She's really this iconic presence that doesn't get enough credit. Maybe it's because these movies she's in, most of them aren't as well-known. Yeah, she's known for Black Sunday, but most of the other ones are probably not necessarily forgettable because I think there's a lot of good films out there. I just think they get buried in the other stuff. I mean, Bava kind of overshadows most of what was going on in the 60s in Italian horror. This is why I want to kind of do this. I didn't want to get in deep to any of these movies because I feel like most people haven't seen a lot of these releases and they're worth watching for sure. Um, I think all of them are worth a watch that I've covered today and maybe Nightmare Castle, which I want to check out at some point um, if I can get to that. But the thing is with Steel is she would bridge this gap and pave a way for the so-called scream queens of the slasher era and beyond. I mean, we had Fay Ray early on. And for my money, Steel is the next big, iconic Scream Queen figure to pop up into horror. And again, we would get tons of those in the 70s and 80s all over the place. But I think Steel was really the one that allowed for that to be brought in. And again, she didn't have a lot of success in her career, unfortunately, um, as far as box office stuff goes. But she is in one of the most memorable Italian films of all time in Black Sunday. So there's that too. And then she... I'm sure fans know her from her smaller roles in those 70s films as well. She is truly one of a kind, though. Um, A beautiful actress that has that face that can turn on a dime and go from sweet and innocent to evil and vicious. And she's just so striking when you see her. When you see Barbara Steele in a film, you know Barbara Steele. She's not going to get lost in the shuffle, even if we're not hearing her voice. If you haven't dug into her catalog, you're doing yourself a real disservice, and I think you should remedy that and get into some of these that I briefly touched upon in the episode. Now, what to start with? Well, let me go ahead and we'll we'll end this episode's main body anyway with what I said at the end of the episode four that I'm going to start doing when we're talking about specific things is giving a top film list at the end, whether it's top 10, top 9, top 6, whatever you need to get through whatever the films, but I want to rank them and give you a good hierarchy. You can probably get a pretty good idea of how I rank these films from what I'm saying in the episode, but I digress. My top six of Barbara's Italian horror films that I have seen and I have featured tonight are number six, The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, number five, The Long Hair of Death, 
Number four, Castle of Blood. Number three, The Ghost. Number two, An Angel for Satan. And number one, of course, is Black Sunday. Just like with the Val Luton list, there's an obvious number one. But I think any of these are worth a watch. If you're going to check out a few, An Angel for Satan and The Ghost and Castle of Blood, I would definitely check those out sooner rather than later. But that's going to about do it. Um, We can move into the portion of the giveaway here and see who won that Eyes Without a Face Blu-ray. All right. I know that I said we were going to get right into the giveaway, but we need to take care of a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into that. Now, over this past weekend from when I'm recording this piece of this episode, um, we had some tragedy strike in the Midwest and in the South, and I just wanted to address that really quick. I know... We had Barely Ashley from Headlong into Monsters be affected by the storms, and I know Brian Scott in Missouri was affected by the storms as well, and um, just glad that everyone got out safe. I know there were some others, but I want to talk about, specifically, I know the guys over at the Real Talk podcast, which I'm a huge fan of, Wes, Gabe, and Tommy. I know that Wes and Gabe live in Bowling Green, Kentucky, And it seems like Bowling Green got hit pretty hard. And I know Kentucky as a whole got hit pretty hard. And luckily, um, Wes and Gabe were fine. It seems like Gabe was in the path of the storm and had some damage, but his house is still standing. His family's still okay, which is the most important thing. That whole community seems like it's just been hit pretty hard. And I know over there on Twitter, they have a link that you can go to and donate to. So I'm just asking if you have the money... And if you're able to, to please donate to that cause to help them rebuild their lives there in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And also, if you don't have the money, then just please go over there on Twitter or wherever and just share the link to see if you can get it out to people who can. If you're not familiar, the Twitter handle for that podcast is at real, R-E-E-L underscore cast, C-A-S-T. So if you go over there and you can check out the link and see what ways you can help. I'll be keeping all those that were affected by the storm in my thoughts and prayers and hope that those affected are able to start to get their lives back in order and get some help rebuilding as well. With that somber note out of the way, I just wanted to read off quick, really appreciative of those who have left a review over on iTunes. That really helps and really, really helps to know that people are listening and enjoying the podcast. So I really do appreciate that. I'll read them off really quick here. Uh, Wes from the aforementioned Real Talk podcast left a very nice review over there. My buddy Chris Shiplett also left a nice review for the podcast. Andred the Blind from the Freaks and Psychos podcast had left a nice review. And Brian Scott, who goes by Horror Movie Fanboy, left me a nice review as well. Appreciate that. Appreciate all the love out there and the support. So just wanted to shout you guys out real quick. Now on to the giveaway here. I'm going to go ahead and put the numbers in a random number generator, and we'll see what it pops out as the winner. So give me just one sec here. And it looks like number five. So that is Raul the Monster Slayer from Headlong Into Monsters podcast. So Raul, hit me up over there on Twitter, buddy, and give me your mailing address, and I'll get that Eyes Without a Face Blu-ray out to you. And while we're on the topic of giveaways, I'm planning on doing some kind of giveaway for my 2021 Horror in Review episode. Um, I have been soliciting over on Twitter for some top 10 or top 5, top 3, top 20, whatever you want to give me, top list over there. And 
I'm not trying to take anyone's thunder or anything. If you got a podcast, you've got your own outlet, you want to put your list on, don't want it spoiled, absolutely understand that. I'm just trying to get some other voices on my episode because it's just going to be me giving my list and I'd like to see what the what other horror lovers are putting out there on their top list especially if you don't have anywhere else to share it so feel free to send me your list and you could be entered in a giveaway who knows um, so just send that over to me any way you can either at the email of screaming through the ages at yahoo.com or send it over in a message on twitter or anywhere really however you can get it to me get it to me and I will read it out and feature it on the show On my next regularly scheduled episode, which won't be until the 3rd of January, we'll have another guest on, and I'm really excited about this. I sat down and talked with Pastor Matt Rawlings about some hammer horror. So we're going to be doing kind of this broad overview topic on hammer horror and the impact that it left and just kind of gushing over the whole scene at that time. So definitely look out for that. In addition to that, sometime in the next probably week or so, um, I will be dropping my 2021 year in review episode. I haven't recorded it as of yet, so please feel free, like I said, to send me your top 10 list and I'll feature it in the show. But I will be recording that too. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a long episode. I'm going to go over a lot of topics, but you're going to get that bonus episode sometime in between these two releases. So just the usual... um, plugs as far as that goes you can follow the podcast over at screaming ages on twitter you can hit me up with an email at screaming through the ages at yahoo.com and you can go over to the website screaming through the ages.com where all of the episodes are housed if you choose to listen to it that way i'd appreciate any kind of review you could give over on your favorite podcast service and if you can if you're not already please subscribe and That way you'll get notice of the episodes first and when they first come out, and that would really help the podcast grow as well. With all that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.